Well, our passage today is Daniel chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter. Uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel, and uh, we have begun uh, the apocalyptic section, the, the section of Revelation. And uh, it's very different from the first six chapters, of course, that are uh, really all narrative, historical narrative about what happened to these men uh, as they were exiled. And we also enter, in looking at chapter 8 today, we enter into the section of Daniel that was written in Hebrew. I've mentioned a few times uh, that Daniel has been written, was written in two different languages, Aramaic and Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 were written in Aramaic. Chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew. Chapter 1 was also in Hebrew. And if you didn't think that was of any significance before today, one of the things that uh, we find is that uh, this section of Daniel seems to have been written precisely and really zeroing in on God's people, uh, whereas chapters 2 through 7, especially that apocalyptic vision in chapter 7, which was written in Aramaic, seemed to be sort of explaining what would happen in world history uh, from Daniel's time all the way until the end of time. What we find here in Daniel chapter 8 is that we really narrow the scope here. Uh, what happens is uh, the, the, the scope and the lens is zeroed down into two of those four great kingdoms that we hear about in chapters 2 and 7, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel 8 zooms in on Medo-Persia and Greece. To, to speak specifically to God's people about what they are going to have to endure. Daniel chapter 8. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath in that row, and you'll find it on pages 745 and 746. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and, but when he was strong... The great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. 
Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one, a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who, who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn before his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the, saint, the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So chapter 8 opens in the third year of Belshazzar. This is now two years after Daniel's vision in chapter 7, which he references here. He references uh, after that which appeared to me at the first. So in other words, Daniel, though, again, this is written in Hebrew, and though it's written sort of for a different audience and for a different purpose, he wants readers to reference back to the vision in chapter 7. I think the reason he's referencing back to that is because he wants to place this vision in context of the vision from chapter 7. Chapter 7, again, goes to the very end of the age. Chapter 7 goes to when God brings final judgment and the Son of Man, the one who has given all power and glory, reigns forever and ever. And 
the beast is finally judged and the, the horrible beast thrown down. Keep that in mind and place this vision in that context and it helps us to understand the end of the story when we're looking at something like this. The year here, this third year in the reign of King Belshazzar is the year 550 BC. Daniel is now approaching 70 years old. Now 550 BC is important in history because it's not only the year that Daniel received this vision, but it's also the year that the Persian king Cyrus has conquered the Medes and has brought them into his own kingdom so that now he has this gigantic kingdom, this force, this power, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Cyrus has united these, and he is setting the stage here, God is, for the return of the exiles. 150 years before Daniel ha had this vision, God had named Cyrus as the one he would use for his purposes. How amazing is that? that God, 150 years before Daniel even had this vision, said, I'm going to use a man named Cyrus as my tool to bring my people back from exile. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name, though you do not know me. Notice that Daniel says that in this vision here, he is standing in Susa. Now, he's not actually standing there. That's 200 miles east of where he's located in Babylon. But he's in his vision standing there. And he's standing there because that is the capital of Persia. Uh, we find in other books like Nehemiah and Esther, uh, Susa is named. That's where Cyrus would basically reign. Now, like chapter 7 in verses 3 and 4, Daniel here sees more beasts, animals. But notice here there is a slight difference. First of all, these are normal animals. They're rams and a goat, a ram and a goat. They're, they're not twisted, grotesque, uh, kind of deformed beasts that you find in, in chapter 7. And, and also, unlike chapter 7, Daniel is told what these beasts, these animals, signify. He's not told any of that in chapter 7. 7, they're, they're left unnamed. But beginning at verse 15, Daniel is given the interpretation of this vision. And he is explicitly told there, if you look down at verse 15, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So Daniel is being told, this is what Media and Persia, that second kingdom, in the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar is going to do. Daniel sees this one animal, this one ram with two horns. And he says, one is higher than the other, and the higher one came up last, which is exactly what happened in history. You just read up on your history, you see that the Medes were the first and the smaller horn. They kind of rose up first. But they were then conquered by Cyrus, the Persian king, the second and larger horn, to make in that one ram, the 
Medo-Persian Empire and a dominant force to be reckoned with. The Persian Empire uh, expanded at a rapid pace. It became far larger than Babylon. It, it ex expanded much larger than any previous ancient Near Eastern Empire. And notice even the direction that the ram is charging. The ram is charging. It's barreling over everything in its wake, but it charges westward and then northward and then southward, which is exactly the direction that Cyrus went when he conquered the nations around him. Now notice how unstoppable the ram seems to be. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. It's funny then that beginning at verse 5, Daniel says, now as I was considering, I read that line, I think here Daniel barely has time to consider the greatness of this ram's power when something else conquers it. No sooner is this ram, does this ram seem uh, omnipotent, nothing can stop it, that it falls from power. Suddenly, this male goat comes flying out of the west. Notice that while the ram charged around quickly, this goat is going so fast that it doesn't even touch the ground. It's flying. Daniel is told again who this goat is. The goat is the king of Greece. And the horn between his eyes is the first king. In other words, this is exactly what happens in history. The male goat that flies out of the west, that shatters the Medo-Persian Empire, and that conquers quicker than any uh, kingdom before is none other than Alexander the Great, spreading the Greece uh, culture. If the Medo-Persian Empire spread quickly, and it did, it was nothing compared to the rapid spread of Greek culture under Alexander the Great. Uh, you read history, it tells you that he defeated the Persian Empire in only three years. That he conquered the entire ancient Near Eastern world by the time he was only 26. What were you doing at 26? <laughs> That's why he's called the Great, and we're not. <clears throat> but it shows you here just how quickly history can turn on a dime. It shows you how fleeting power and might and majesty is in this world. That you can be on top of the pile, that you can be the great one, that you can have all the power and all the money and all the glory, and no sooner do you start to uh, think that you're great that someone else comes along and knocks you off your pedestal. That's exactly what happened to the Medo-Persian Empire. But notice that the same language is used of Alexander the Great. No one could stand before the goat. That's true. Just when it seems like an earthly kingdom or ruler is unstoppable, another one comes to unseat it. You know, every, every era has a, a, its dominant athletes of that era. And it, everyone says, no one's ever going to beat this guy. No one's ever going to be as good as this guy. And the, the funny thing is, uh, you, you know, if I hear someone, you know, from like my dad's era talk about how great Johnny Unitas is, um, I, I'm sure he was, but, but, but who, who thinks of him anymore? 
I mean, when, 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 when greatest quarterbacks are brought up now with kids of this era, not one of them, says Johnny Unitas. He's a forgotten relic of the past. The same is true for Alexander the Great. Now, we remember him. But notice here this, this one horn who was at the apex of his power, had conquered the world at 26, when he was just the age of 32, suddenly died of malaria and was gone. And his kingdom, just as was told to Daniel, was divided into four rulers. It's exactly what happened. Now here's where the vision for Daniel gets very interesting. Because what you see here is that God's word acknowledges the greatness of the Medo-Persian Empire. God's word acknowledges the greatness of Alexander the Great, but whereas the history books focus much more on them, God's word speaks of them as here today and gone tomorrow. God's word zeroes in on someone that the history books barely acknowledges as significant. Why? Because the one God's word zeroes in on was significant for God's people. So, what do we find? We find that God's word zeroes in on one of these little horns. Uh, Alexander was broken, that, that one horn, he died. Four horns came up. Those are the four uh, generals that, that Alexander's kingdom was divided into. And out of one of those kingdoms came this little horn. We find this in verses 9 through 14. Now again, you'll notice <clears throat> that term little horn. If you remember last week, Daniel's vision from chapter 7. In chapter 7, he focused on one that was called a little horn. That's on purpose. I mean, the, these, this is supposed to get you to think about that. But in chapter 7, the little horn represented the Antichrist. The little horn was not just conquering indiscriminately. It wasn't uh, tr trying to just take over the world, and if God's people are, happen to be there, they get trampled too. No, the little horn in chapter 7 uh, purposely went after God's people to punish them. Chapter 7's little horn, I think it, it kind of stood for all Antichrist, but specifically the final Antichrist who, who is still to come. Here in chapter 8, we see someone who is an Antichrist. We see someone who is, who is in himself a little horn. He, he is like that little horn from chapter 7. He isn't the same one. The little horn in chapter 7 is, is at the end of the ages. This one is going to come up here as part of Alexander's broken empire. Now, notice that he is someone who is attacking directly the people of God. Notice the language in verses 9 through 14. He turns, this little horn, he turns his attention toward the glorious land. Interesting how Daniel, he's been exiled into Babylon, placed in the highest seats of power there, has seen the magnificence of Babylon in its glory years under Nebuchadnezzar, has seen the hanging gardens 
has seen the, the majestic ziggurats and, and ha, still at age 70 thinks of the land of Judah as the glorious land, as the land that he loves. This little horn grew great to the host of heaven. He threw down and trampled on the stars of heaven. No, notice all of this language here. He became as great as the prince of the host. He overthrows offerings. He throws truth itself to the ground. You can see in this language a huge difference here between this little horn who isn't conquering the world, who isn't rising up as this great beast that no one can stand before, but, but whereas the, the actions of the ram and the goat it's kind of indiscriminately destroyed and conquered, they fought one another. They killed and fought each other. And this little horn who specifically fights against God and his people. Well, who is this? Well, Daniel wasn't told who this was, but history has shown us who it is. In 175 BC, in the land of Judah, the glorious land, there came a man named Antiochus IV. And he specifically was someone from one of these four rulers, the, 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 the ruler that was over that part of the world, the land of Judah. This man, Antiochus IV, he took upon himself the name Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God made manifest, which means that this man was announcing to the people of Israel, who he was over, that he was God in the flesh. According to one scholar, he says this, Antiochus Epiphanes brought about one of the most horrible periods in history for believers, a time when the very existence of the true religion and its adherents was threatened. Where do we hear about this guy? Well, we can read about him, and you can pull it up today when you get home. Uh, I read it this week in the book of First Maccabees. It's not scripture, but it's part of the apocryphal books and reliable history of the world. If you read that book, it details what Antiochus Epiphanes did. It's, it's almost hard to fathom that a guy could have this much anger and hatred for Jews and for their God and for their religion. He, just to name a few things, it, it goes into more detail than this, but he enters the sanctuary of the temple. He steals and tears down the sacred vessels. He makes laws saying that the Israelites will sacrifice to idols and will profane the Sabbath or else be killed. He forbids burnt offerings. He forbids drink offerings. He forbids sacrifices of any kind to the God of Israel. He outlaws circumcision. And any male infants that he finds have been circumcised, he kills. He kills them and he hangs their dead bodies around the necks of their mothers before killing their mothers as well. He sets up an altar to Zeus on the altar of the Lord, and there sacrifices a pig on the offering, on the altar. He tears up, he throws down, and he burns any book of the law or Old Testament that he can find. 
he throws truth itself down, and he slaughters thousands of Jews, including men, women, boys, girls, and even infants. First Maccabees says this, but many in Israel stood firm, and they were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. So, what do we see in Daniel's vision? We see exactly those kind of things described. Notice the question. The question that is asked by this holy one is, for how long? How long is this going to go on? How long will these horrible events, how long will this tribulation endure and last? That's the question that is asked. And that's the question that we see throughout the Old Testament. We see it asked of Moses, how long? Job, many of the psalmists, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, they asked, Lord, how long? And we see it even all the way to Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Christian, many of you have probably come here this morning asking about something in your own life. Lord, how long? How long must this endure? Well, Daniel is given an answer. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, there are two ways to understand this 2,300 evenings and mornings, and scholars are pretty much equally divided on how to understand it. It could be understood as 1,150 days. And that's because there was every day in the temple a morning and an evening sacrifice. So if we're talking about uh, uh, 2,300 morning and evenings, then that would amount to 1,150 days. The other way to look at it is just that it is 2,300 days or six years. So if you take the time period as being half of the, if you take the time period as being referring to the morning and evening sacrifices, then it's a time period of about three years. If you take it as just days as a whole, it's a time period of six. The reason scholars are divided on this is because either way you look at it, it fits what happened in history. Because we know that historically it was a man named Judas Maccabeus, nicknamed the Hammer, if you've heard the story, he fought against Antiochus Epiphanes and won, and he rededicated the temple to God. He threw out everything that was false in there, and that led to what is called the Feast of Dedication, which we see Jesus celebrating in the New Testament. We know it today as Hanukkah. That's what happened. That's how Hanukkah got its start. When did that happen? The rededication of the temple happened on December 14th, 164 BC. Three years earlier, 
in December 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes had set up the altar to Zeus in the temple. So you could look at it as three years. Either it was three years after he set up the altar to Zeus that it was thrown down and rededicated, or you could start by that date in 164 BC, work back six years, and it's in 170 BC that the high priest that year, Onias, was murdered by order of Antiochus, and from that point on, the persecution started against the Jews. Either way, whether it's three years or six years, it's exactly what Daniel was told before the temple was rededicated. <clears throat> Daniel, here beginning at verse 15, is informed twice that the vision is for the time of the end. Now again, we know that this isn't the end of the world. The time of the end of the world was discussed in the vision in, in chapter 7, when God brings final judgment, when the Son of Man sets up his earthly kingdom to last forever. Here, when we see the time of the end, it doesn't mean that, it means the time of the end of these special afflictions. One Old Testament scholar says this, it refers to the end of time when afflictions or indignation are to be permitted upon Israel. It refers to those special afflictions that are to come on the people of the Jews before the messianic period. The end here, verses 23 to 27, what we see here really is, is just further detail about all that Antiochus Epiphanes will do. And Daniel is told to seal up this vision. He's told to seal it up to preserve it. To preserve it because it refers to many days from now. In other words, Daniel is getting a glimpse of what will happen 400 years from his time to God's people. And notice what Daniel says at the very end. He says two things. I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Now this isn't the first time either that he's been appalled or that he hasn't understood something. After the vision in chapter 7, his color changes, he grows anxious, his thoughts alarm him, etc. But this vision is different, isn't it? Because for apocalyptic literature, this vision is very clear. We said before how apocalyptic is, is oftentimes opaque, that, that it's, it's pictures and images, and, and if you get too close to it, you miss the forest for the trees. All of chapter 7 was pretty vague. No kingdom was specified. No names were given. But that's not the case here. Here he's told exactly who the two kingdoms are, Persia and Greece. He's told exactly when this little horn's going to rise up, exactly how long this is going to endure, the number of days. He's given a lot for apocalyptic vision, a lot of detail. In fact, he was given enough detail that, that in the end he was overcome and appalled by what he saw. It made him sick to his stomach and he had to lie down for days. So, when Daniel says, I did not understand it, he can't possibly mean, I, ha I have no idea what any of this means. I mean, that, that wouldn't make any sense. He'd be contradicting why he was so appalled. See, I... I don't think that's primarily what he means. When he says 
I was appalled and I did not understand it. I don't think he was saying that he didn't know what was going to happen. I think what he was saying is that he didn't understand why God would allow it. See, Daniel had a timetable that he was working with. He had been told from Jeremiah and from Isaiah that the time of the exile would be 70 years. He was told that Cyrus would be the one to take the Jews back to their homeland. He had been here in Babylon all these years knowing that 70 years was, was on the horizon, that it was almost up, that, that Cyrus had been raised up, that, that, that he had now conquered the Medes, that, that he was on the march. Daniel saw it happening before him. He, he knew that seven years was right around the corner. And, and if God allowed him, he, he would see it, and he did see it. He saw the return of the exiles. God had promised that after seven years they would return home, that they would return home and, and rebuild the temple. And I can't help but think that in Daniel's mind, once they returned home, once they rebuilt the temple, all would be right again. Only Daniel finds out that's not the case. They would return, yes. They would rebuild the temple, yes. Sacrifices would resume, yes. High priests would resume, yes. But their troubles were not over. In fact, Daniel finds out the worst is yet to come. That there's one who is going to, on purpose, try to wipe out the Jewish people and make them profane their God. Daniel found out and it made him sick. And he said, Lord, I don't understand. Christian, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that way when, when God's actions, when, when his timetable doesn't make sense to you? And you say, God, I, I don't understand. I don't understand why you're doing this. When we, when we look around the world and when we look around at our society and, and we see people everywhere shaking their fist at God and mocking him, and a lot of them seem to be the ones in power, we see Christians in other countries, as Jeff just prayed, being persecuted for their faith, being imprisoned and killed, and this just goes on and goes on and goes on. We look at our own lives. We, 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 we see... Uh, little persecutions in our own life, perhaps being called a hater or a bigot for standing up for what God's word says and, and maybe fearing what our coworkers are going to say. And, and more than that, we see horrible relationships and, and horrible diagnoses and things like that. And, and we're appalled and we say, Lord, I don't understand. I was just telling Michelle this week, most of you know that my best friend died a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, I don't understand why uh, he would take him from me now when I was assuming we were going to grow old together. But more than that, I say, Lord, he was a faithful minister of the gospel. He proclaimed your truth every week when so many churches don't. He leaves behind a wife and three children, all still living at home. Why, Lord? I don't understand why, of all people, you would take him, and why now? See, to make matters worse, notice what Daniel is told about how this horrible man, Antiochus, gets his strength. 
God says, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. <clears throat> Wait a second. Wait, he does all of this through someone else's power? Whose? Well, ultimately, Scripture says it's by God's power. Scripture tells us that, that it is God who gives life and health and sustaining power to all his creatures, that nothing is outside of his sovereign control. The reason that we, we go to God and ask him why is because we know this to be true. We know that he's the one in control of all of history. We know that he can change things if he wants to. I don't go to fellow human beings and say, why is the world the way it is? Tell me what you're doing. They look at me like I'm crazy. Job. Job said, ask the beasts, they'll tell you. Ask the birds of the heaven, they'll tell you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. If God shuts a man in, none can open. If God withholds the waters, they dry up. If God sends them out, they overwhelm the land. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, not even the power to sin is autonomous. Even for the breath it breathes to sin against God, it is dependent upon the one against whom it sins. Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, one of the founders of Westminster Seminary, he was on a train and saw a little girl sitting on her father's lap, and she reached up and slapped him in the face. And Van Til said, that's exactly what we're like. Had her father not been holding her up on her lap, she would never be able to slap him. We shake our fists and sin against the God who is at that very moment sustaining us in our sin. If it weren't for a sustaining power, we would immediately go. God gave Antiochus Epiphanes the life and the power that he used to sin against the one who gave him the power, and that's what we do. It's not just him. It's not just those that persecute Christians. Christian, we confess our sin every week. You and I. We do this every week. We take the strength and the life and the power that our God, who we love, graciously gives us, and we use it against him. And we run from him, and we turn from him, and we turn to our own wicked desires. Every single person who has ever lived, save for one, has taken the gifts and abilities that God has given them and used it against the one who gave them the gifts and abilities. Both Paul and Job did not understand why they were suffering by God's hand, and to Job, God's answer was, I'm God and you're not. And to Job, or to Paul, God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. Notice what Daniel does. He went about the king's business. In other words, he did what God had called him to do. He got this vision of what was going to happen. He was appalled by it. He was sick by it. But in the end, 
He lived where God placed him and he did what God called him to do and left the future in the hands of the sovereign Lord God Almighty. Martin Luther once said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree today. Christian, where has God placed you today? What has God called you to do as you await his return to make all things right? Because he will return. We know that from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's already been told the end of the story. You see, there is one glimmer of hope in this horrible vision that Daniel received. Daniel is told this, Antiochus shall be broken, but by no human hand. Whose hand breaks him? God's. God raised up Antiochus Epiphanes. God gave him the power to do what he did. And when it was God's choice, he took him out. Antiochus Epiphanes died in agony of some kind of physical ailment in 164 BC. And even those around him who weren't, knew nothing of Israel's God said this must be done by some divine hand. Christian, God's final judgment is coming. The one that Daniel saw in chapter 7, it will be here one day. It's coming, but it is suspended right now. And while his final judgment is suspended, Christians are being persecuted, tragedies are happening, but millions are finding salvation in Christ. See, one scholar says this, the final word is not had by the ram or the goat, but by the lamb. It's interesting that the one who speaks the bad news to Daniel, the angel Gabriel, also speaks the good news to Mary of the kingdom that is coming. The lamb, the lamb has the final word, the lamb that was slain, the temple that was destroyed. See, Christian, we we can struggle as Daniel did with why, Lord? Daniel struggled with this vision when he saw that a man that God empowered trampled down the temple and did everything he could to destroy it. We wonder why God would empower someone so wicked to do something so awful, and then we see him do it again. We see him do it again, not with the temple in Israel, but to the one whom the temple pointed The one who was desecrated, the one who was trampled down, the one who was destroyed by wicked people, we see him do it when the lamb, the one to whom all the sacrifices pointed, was crucified by the hands of sinful men. See, we can wonder, why, Lord? Why are you letting all of these bad things happen? But you see, God took the worst thing in human history, By far, the thing that makes what Antiochus Epiphanes did look like nothing. The the torture and crucifixion of the Lord of glory. The one whom we all should have been bowing down and worshiping. And we nailed him to a cross. And God took that most appalling event in all of human history to bring about the salvation of his people. Christian, as we wait for our Lord to return, never forget that God is doing his work even now. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, we're so grateful for this word. We're so grateful for this vision that you gave to Daniel. So grateful for the, the truth that it, it showed and, and how perfectly you pointed to the future in Daniel's day and to history in our day. And Father, we know that if you kept your word then, you will keep it in the future. And we pray that as we await our Lord's return, we wait with patience and faith and being about the business that you've called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name.